Welcome to the Commercial Matters Podcast. Your show host is Amit Kapoor, owner of Mindful Contract Solutions. Nothing in this podcast is intended to be legal advice. Hi there, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Matters Podcast. Before I get into, into this week's podcast episode, I just want to excuse myself for the long hiatus leading up to this episode. So I have been quite busy at work and with the Euro 2020 also going on that left me with very little time to focus on creating a meaningful podcast episode for you but hey it's good to be back so i'm really looking forward to today's episode and i hope you get some value out of it so far we have been focusing on specific themes and having you know dedicated episodes that just hone in on that theme the format for the next few weeks is going to be somewhat different what we will do instead is look at commercial case law and I'll tell you why that's important. What I have observed in working with program directors is we often like to build upon our past experiences and run programs how we have previously successfully been able to run them. Now what that means is we have some practices that we employ just based upon our experience and the blind spot here is what might have been acceptable practice a few years back may no longer be acceptable because case law has caught up with it, for example, and things that were acceptable then are probably unlawful now. So we're going to be focusing on, you know, some aspects where you might wish to have a rethink on whether you want to continue with that practice going further. So there are going to be two practices that we'll be focusing on this week, and they are both in focus because there have been commercial cases that have been decided on those issues in the last week. So the first practice which many program directors should be very accustomed with is about restrictive covenants. Now you may wonder that doesn't really sound that familiar. So how is it a practice I'm accustomed with? So let me try and explain what I'm talking about here. In my observation, many program directors have no problem with a lot of the people that suppliers provide. So they generally like the technical people that suppliers provide in IT programs, for example, but they sometimes have issues around how those people are being managed or governed by the suppliers. So it's quite an irony that they like a lot of the people that the supplier provide, but they don't like the supplier as such. And, and I don't know if you if, if that's something that resonates with you. So what that can often lead on to is if you like someone, we sometimes forget that those people have a choice as to who their paymasters are. So right now they might be employed by supplier X and they might decide that it's in their best career interest to move suppliers to you know, supplier Y or they might want to change their agencies if they are an interim worker. Now, because the client program director likes that resource so much, they are looking for ways to re-engage that individual through another contracting vehicle or another route. And this kind of practice is what leads on to restrictive covenants in your desired workers' previous contracts being engaged. And what that essentially means is if that individual worker was providing their services to you as a client, via an intermediary which could have been a service an outsourcing company or it could have been a recruitment agency or a managed service provider they would have had some kind of a contract that prohibits them from doing business with the same end client 
through another route. And you can see why an intermediary would place that kind of clause in the workers' contracts because they do recognize that because of the proximity of that worker with the client's organization, there is a very high chance that that relationship grows so strong that the client and the worker can collectively decide to change the contracting route. So to protect that legitimate interest, an intermediary or an outsourcing company would have some kind of protection in their contract with the end client and with the worker. So if a program director unknowingly decides to re-engage a worker through another contracting route, that's where an issue of restrictive covenant can come into play. My general view of what most program directors feel about restrictive covenants is that they aren't worth the paper they are written on and there is something called as freedom of labor and you can't really be bonded to work or not work in certain places after you have exited your contract. I have never believed in that view because case law has had a very mixed outcome to issues around restrictive covenants. And this particular case that I'm going to now talk about re-emphasizes the importance of understanding what those covenants are. So this case is Credico Marketing Limited versus Lambert. I won't do too much of a case summary because this isn't a case summary as such, but I will provide the links to the case on the show notes. So feel free to kind of look at the judgment if that piques your interest. But in very brief summary, I'd say that Credico Marketing Limited is somewhat like an intermediary and Lambert was an individual who was working with Credeco Marketing Limited via an intermediary firm. So there were restrictions in the contract between Lambert and Credeco Marketing Limited that disallowed Lambert from engaging with the same end client or with any end client within a 10 mile radius from his original place of work for a period of six months after the termination of his contract with Credeco Marketing Limited. So Mr. Lambert breached that clause and started engaging with a client within the six month period and within a 10 mile radius. And Credeco Marketing Limited issued proceedings against Lambert. In the first instance, it was an injunction proceeding and that was quickly followed by an expedited trial. Now, the usual practice of any court in deciding a case around restrictive covenants is to firstly assess that the covenant is put in place to protect a legitimate business interest. Now, what this means is, has critical marketing invested something in the relationship that if Lambert decided to went on its own, critical marketing would make a loss? as a result. So one would argue in this case that Credico Marketing would have no difficulty establishing a genuine, a legitimate business interest because they are the company who brought customers that someone like Lambert could service. So as a result of those engagements between Lambert and those customers, Mr. Lambert might now feel comfortable that if he set up a marketing company on his own, he could deal or service with service those customers directly, effectively cutting out credit to marketing in the process. So the first test is easy. The second part of the legal test is, does the restrictive covenant go no further than is required to reasonably protect 
the legitimate business interests of the other's party. So in this case, the court decided that the clause was reasonable and therefore it decided in favor of Credit Echo Marketing Limited. Now, why is this important for program directors to be aware of? The main reason is quite often your commercial and contracts management team will have no awareness that a covenant has been engaged. And that's largely because the commercial team usually deals with setting up contracts and then they let the program team get on with managing the resources. So what that means is they have very little awareness of who are the underlying resources who are providing a service. And they would also therefore not detect when contracting with a future supplier that apparently engages the same underlying resources that restrictive covenant is being engaged. So the awareness is needed actually at the program level that this issue is important. So if you're a program director, what should you do when you realize that one of the supplier's resources who you really liked a lot has decided to leave that supplier and work for somebody else or has decided to leave working with a particular agency? I would say at that point, you should be engaging your commercial rep and briefing them very clearly on that resource move and the fact that it is desirable for you as a program to engage that resource. Usually there are very few ways around it. Quite often this will require your organization, which could be either done by a commercial rep or by yourself, to engage with the intermediary and explain that whilst you haven't engineered that resource moving out of, of the relationship that they had with that resource, you'd really like to keep engaging them further and see what they say. Quite often what would happen is they would draw their attention to the covenant in the contract, but they might be able to consider waiving it in recognition of the relationship that they have with you, for instance. What intermediaries really hate is where they have no inkling that something like this is happening and they discover it in due course. Because for them, an issue of re-engagement of an existing resource through another contract is seen like a breach of trust. So it's quite important, in my view, to play it with the straight bat. But most important is that you recognize the issue, which is why I wanted to bring it to your attention today. So that was issue number one that we talked about. The second issue I wanted to draw your attention to today was about pre-contract engagement with suppliers. And this is again something that happens quite often under the radar. So your commercial reps may or may not be aware that you're talking to some external suppliers, probably consultancies about things that you need help with. But all of this is being done pre-contract and the suppliers are also treating that as pre-sales engagement free of charge. But the real issue is sometimes a lot can be said in those discussions which might lead to a conclusion that there is an enforceable contract in play between the organizations. So a case that was decided last week in the High Court, again the Queen's Bench decision, was between two organizations, Jamp Pharma Corporation, I think this company is based in Canada, and Unichem Laboratories, a company based in India. Again, I won't go into too much details about the case, but very briefly, Jamp Pharma is into drug manufacturing and Unichem Laboratories is about engaged in work around licensing and sales of drugs. So these two organizations 
did have a contract between them but this was only in relation to a particular drug and the issue in front of the court was whether there was a binding contract between them in respect of other drugs jamp pharma argued that there was a binding contract between them and unichem was arguing that there wasn't any binding contract now very interestingly jamp pharma's key contention in making the claim that there was a binding contract was that any of the correspondence that happened between jamp pharma and unichem about another drug was not marked with the phrase subject to contract now this is a phrase that's very familiar to anyone in the contracts and commercial world and i would say many program directors should be aware of it but where you are having conversations with another party that are pre contract you always try and get the word subject to contract somewhere either in your subject line or somewhere in the body to illustrate that all of this is still you know subject to some contract being between the parties so the idea is if you use those phrases you can be a lot more open in how you can explore future relationship to be between the parties but you don't bind yourself into that relationship just because you've uttered them in an email thankfully the court decided in favor of the defendant here so it it did not consider the lack of the use of words subject to contract as determinative and the way the court actually approached solving this dispute was to review the entire course of correspondence that had passed between the parties and the key factual finding was that when viewed objectively the relevant exchanges which which means the emails passing between you know the key representatives on both sides had proceeded on the basis that for some agreement to come into existence the parties would sign a physical document and this remained so even if the parties had reached agreement on all the essential terms now this was a very interesting finding because jam pharma tried to argue that because the organizations had reached agreement on all essential terms there was a binding contract or there was definitely a clear intention to enter into legal relations so whether or not they had signed a document did not negate that agreement but the court noted that the references in both parties emails to a formal contract being signed was only consistent with an objective intention that the formal execution was a condition to that agreement becoming legally binding and it wasn't an intention that the parties would only record such agreement as they had in writing i'm sorry if that was a little difficult to follow so in very simple terms i think jamp pharma was contending that the recording of an agreement on a piece of paper that is eventually signed is of less significance what is more significant is that in correspondence you have reached a meeting of minds with the other side whether or not that takes the form of a written document that is signed is not as relevant thankfully the courts did not agree with that so that does give you some leeway in what kind of communication you can have with any supplier pre-contract but i would always say that it's probably the right thing to do to engage your commercial reps in those correspondence and those conversations smart commercial managers will usually find a way of engaging in a safe manner with the other side pre-contract quite often in my view program directors often have internalized 
the fact that if we bring it up with commercial they're going to tell us to back off and not engage with the supplier pre-contract at all and that is not entirely true there are always ways around it if your commercial rep is willing to support you in that endeavor one interesting observation that the judge made about this whole matter was that the post-contracting conduct of the parties is considered as an admissible evidence to prove the existence of a contract. And in that respect, the court observed that there was nothing in the parties' conduct subsequent to their negotiations that suggested that either of them had intended that an agreement would be legally binding absent formally signed document. Right, folks, that's it for this week. I hope you found this of value. If you are a regular listener of our podcast, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review on whichever device you listen to this podcast on. I'm signing out for this week. I hope to see you next week. Thank you and have a good week ahead. That's this week's episode of the Commercial Matters Podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening. 